Hey, this is Jeannie Robertson. I am on a radio interview with the famous Rick Roberts. May I call you back? Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the podcast. Rick Roberts here. And today I thought I'd share an interview I had with Jeannie Robertson. Jeannie left us here uh, last week, and I think this podcast interview I did with her is a good example of who she was and what she stood for. Uh, She's very, very funny. We're going to miss her for sure, and uh, I just thought it'd be nice to give her a send-off by replaying this episode we did back a, a few years ago. Um, If you're unsure or didn't know Jeannie Robertson, man, uh, it's worth going to YouTube and watching some of her videos. She pretty much did it all from being a uh, beauty pageant queen and uh, getting into speaking and doing after dinner events to becoming a Toastmasters Golden Gavel Award winner and being a big part of the National Speakers Association and all kinds of other great things. She was just an incredible person and I thought I'd play this podcast for you as it appeared uh, back in the day. So, long live Jeannie Roberts. Hey, I'm super excited. I can barely wait to turn this interview over to you guys. Uh, recently, I got to meet up with actually one of my favorite comics of all time. She doesn't call herself a stand-up comedian, doesn't call herself a comedian. She calls herself a humorist. But uh, back, I don't know how many years ago, I started listening to Sirius XM Radio when it first came out. And on the Clean Channel, Laugh USA, I was listening for myself, but I also heard a lot of people I had never heard before. Uh, Carl Hurley is one that comes to mind, but also Jeannie Robertson. These were storytellers that had great comedic balance in their stories. And, man, the, every time I heard a Jeannie story, it was just so good. And the reveal at the end, the ultimate surprise, is such a great twist. Every single one of her stories got me. And the the laughs were there all along the way. I mean, she may not be trying to get you know a laugh every 16 seconds, but she is definitely delivering on uh, funny and on comedy and on punchlines. So uh, I listened to her then and then, you know, saw that she started touring and doing theaters. And I thought that was cool. And I'm like, how did I miss her in the comedy club scene? It's because she never did comedy clubs. Uh, Jeannie started out early on. You'll hear in the interview a little bit about her. She started off after a Miss North Carolina pageant, uh, telling some funny stories and then getting booked to do that more and more. And then became a speaker that had a few points, mainly finding the humor in everyday life until now where she's selling out theaters. Uh, pretty impressive overall. She talks about her journey, how she did it. We met at the National Speakers Association Conference just a couple of weeks ago, and she was nice enough to pop in on a session where we're teaching other people humor techniques. Uh, that session put on by Karen Eddington, who you've heard in the uh, podcast before. I'll link to her episode in the show notes. Also along in that session was Jess Pettit. She has been on the podcast as well. And in that session also was Devin Henderson, who I just recorded a podcast with, and he'll be in an upcoming episode. So lots of familiar faces and, uh, and names that were there. Anyway, Jeannie participated. She got to do some of her comedy, which ultimately just tore the room apart. She's so funny. And she broke down how she goes about her writing process. 
All of this is information you need to get between your ears and down on paper. So I'm going to step back and turn it over now to the interview with Jeannie Robertson. Well, I'm on the phone with one of my favorite comedy legends, and I finally got to meet her here recently, Jeannie Robertson. How's it going today, ma'am? Doing great. I, we had a great time. We wanted to program together uh, at the NSA convention. It's great to meet you too, Rick. Hey, it's great to finally meet you. And uh, just real quickly, yeah, we were at the National Speakers Association Conference, and you've been a member and an active member for how many years? I'm just curious. I joined in 78. I became president, I think, in 85. And uh, I have not missed a meeting. I, I, I am a I'm busy like you are, but I never go to the meeting that I don't learn something that either makes me funnier or helps me run my business better. So I'll, and now my friends are all there and I hope you're one of my new friends. Hey, I hope I am one of yours as well. It's been uh, five years for me that I've been part of the conference. And like you said, usually within the first hour, the first meeting, I've written something down that's going to more than pay for the conference. And then everything after that's just gravy and the, the friendships evolve from that and you, you look forward to the, the lunch times and the dinners as much as you do the meetings don't you well you do and then your listeners can try to envision about 1500 professional speakers humorists con- comedians motivational people trainers all of us the one thing we have in common is if there's a group we like to be the one up front yes so that's <laughs> the one, one thing that we all have in common and uh, even if it's a person who's does tra- all day training sessions, which I, you know, I just don't do. I'm a humorist, but uh, I can learn from them. And so we have a good, a good time. Yeah. And sometimes I wonder if we ought to invite the professional listeners association to join us. So if somebody's listening to all the people talking, <laughs> I know it. So what's happening where you live? Well, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a, I'm a country guy. I grew up in Kentucky and lived down here in Nashville now. And I know you're in North Carolina. Were, were you born and raised there? I, I wasn't born here, but I was brought up here, and you will not, with you from Tennessee and Kentucky, you will not need an interpreter for my accent no. at all. I knew you were in Nashville. I'm, I Actually, I'm going to have a show by myself uh, at the Ryman in September. Yeah, I've got that circled on my calendar. Are you recording your uh, new project then? No, no, I'm not recording again in March. That'll be the ninth dvd full-length dvd with new material but taping at the ryman is another story <laughs> so these people have been nice enough to invite me to come in and do a show and i'll go with that and we hope we fill it up we've sold about half of the tickets and it's uh, you know here we are not even halfway in july so i'm ex- i'm very excited oh by the way um i went over to the ryman flew over and took a couple of buddies of mine in march and we saw carol burnett there Oh, and she's 84. She walked out. She did an hour and a half. The women will be impressed with this in heels. Oh, my. Um, blew us away. Absolutely blew us away. She so showed some clips that were hilarious. And of course, Tim Conway was there. <laughs> was unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> you can just. Yeah, she I was thrilled with watching her. And I wanted to meet her. And I did get to meet her briefly. And she just was lovely. But uh Watching her work in my shows, I will say, ask me three questions. I don't have any questions planted. And I do it in the middle. I've seen people come back out and do this type of thing, but I want to make sure I close with something that's an anchor story that's really funny since I'm supposed to be funny. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and and then I'll say if I can't make the whole uh, the audience laugh with my answer, I'll give you a DVD. And what I have found is on the first question, the people sort of sit there, but then by the second question, they catch on and up, go to the hands and third. Well, Carol Burnett's entire show is apparently, if you just looked at the surface, she's answering questions. She used to do this at the end of her television show. Of course, it was taped, could be edited, and it was a, it was a hit with everybody. But I watched her, Rick. It was like just watching a pro. She could turn your question. She knew where she was going with those answers. She knew she was going to work in this clip of, of um, Harvey Corman and Tim Conway at the in the dentist office. She knew she was going to do her gone with the wind, show her gone with the wind clip. And so she, you could have gone all three nights and you would have gotten different stories and different ad libs and that kind of thing. But she had some definite things that she was going to always work back to. And she was a real pro at getting right where she wanted to go. Yeah. Those questions. It's pretty amazing to see somebody that's done it for that amount of time. And she still knows her audience probably better than they know themselves. And she's able to to string those stories together in a way that, you know, probably seems off the cuff to everybody else, but she, she kind of knows the main question she's going to get. And, uh, Oh, absolutely. Well, they want to hear her do her famous, ah, that kind (laughs) of thing. So she gets that out of the way. I mean, she was just, she was perfect. And what was so funny the night I went, when we went in, uh, they were checking security at the rhyme and a lady said, I know you. And I thought, really because i'm not a, a household name she said i just put your p- picture down and we went inside and there were 2300 seats at the rhyme and i think that's correct and they had put a, a picture of me in every seat with the date of my show and i said i don't understand this and then it gets back down to let us never forget that comedy is a business they said the same people that are bringing you in brought her in oh, so yeah. why would they not why would they not try to sell tickets to right. two similar right. audiences, clean humor that's original and that kind of thing. Well, I was flattered. I was just so flattered. I said, well, I had to come back the other two nights for her show. If I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it, for, for many of us, and I'm sure many of your listeners right now, uh, being funny is a business. And you have to remember that. And I've done this now for 54 years. I just didn't choose to go the comedy club route. And so when you first started, did you you know, start with speaking first and then comedy became a bigger part of it? Or were you looking for, you know? No, from the beginning, I was funny. What what happened, I was a rising junior at Auburn University. I went home. I was called by my local JCs to be in the Miss Graham, North Carolina, Graham pageant. And it led up to the Miss, as we say in the South, the Miss America pageant. <laughs> and, and so I went home and I entered. There were six of us and I won. And so that, that enabled me that summer to enter the Miss North Carolina pageant. And it was uh, the largest in the nation at that time in four nights and was on statewide TV and so forth. And barefooted with my hair mashed down at that time, I was six feet, two inches tall and had been. So all of a sudden I won that and I did a funny talent. And so they, I became that, that real tall Miss North Carolina that everybody, there were only three television channels. Everybody was watching it that night in my state and I I didn't realize it exactly but I had to drop out of school for a year and I toured and I made more than 500 little speeches in one year and I was 19 years old and turned 20 and and it took me 
like many of your listeners listening, you'll know what I mean. It took me about a week to realize I was going to be asked to speak at every one of these little stops. And if I said something funny and they laughed, I got more invitations. Plus, I had a ball. They were having fun and I was too. So I began to just really move forward. Before long, they were saying, look, she can cut a ribbon for your bank, but do you need her to do 20 minutes? She loves to just keep telling stories. Or I'd go to a pageant. So I crowned the next Miss North Carolina a year later. And the following week, I spoke at four meetings in North Carolina. And I never looked back. All I was doing then was banquets and conventions. I got some points as it kept growing and growing and growing. I went back to school and I kept flying somewhere every weekend and entertaining people, mostly back to North Carolina. But the um, the it word of mouth, this was pre-cassette. It was pre about everything. My first mimograph paper was purple on it that people would sniff. <laughs> was my first brochure, and so, but it just got bigger and bigger and bigger, and finally. I just said, you know, if I could not be teaching and could really print a brochure and mail it out and go far away places, word of mouth was it. But what I had also had to do, if I wanted to do the corporate uh, and the association speeches, and I did, um, I had to have a message or a point, and I put together some points on developing a sense of humor. And I just kept going in some then in my 60s, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And when I was in my 60s, I embraced the Internet. I encourage everyone to do this. I don't do everything on it. I don't do every single social media, but I figured out what would, would do different things for me. And at the same time, Sirius XM started playing me every day on the family comedy channels. And then some people, I think you know Al McCree in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Al came to me and said, I think you can sell your stories on iTunes. And I, my question was, I was writing my own material. I always had. I said, well, who's going to go to somewhere like iTunes? Isn't that music? Why would they go there? And He said, well, we can figure it out. And then he came back to me after we figured that out and said, okay, we think you have name recognition. Now, here's something important for your listeners to understand. When a person selects a speaker for a meeting, a chamber banquet, all the way to a national convention, a corporate meeting. They virtually have three choices. On one end of the spectrum, they can get a free speaker. A politician is always available. They can get somebody who's just won an honor. They may or may not be good, but your budget is very low, and you've just got to fill the slot. You're just welcome almost for a warm body to come in there. On the other end, way on the other end, you have celebrities. You will pay them a lot of money to come. The celebrity fees go way, way up. They they may be a good speaker, but they may not be a good speaker. And this is why they could have earned their celebrity by winning a lot of golf tournaments. They could have uh, done something famous and got their names in the paper. They could be a famous actor. And people are thrilled that they're coming to their convention. And, and, and again, politicians with big fees come in. But, but they don't have to be good. And in the middle, there we are, Rick. We yeah. are people who are professional speakers. You're going to pay us. Uh, but but there shouldn't be a chance of us being good. That's why we're there. This is what we do for a living. And again, there are different fees for different budgets. And so everybody, 
it's not you're not doing brain surgery in your first speech you do you do a speech and people always want to know how do you get the first one how do you keep going and there's little tricks you can do and um well i'd say not tricks as much as good advice but you begin as as you begin to hear meeting planners say oh we can pay you we'd love to have you book it let's book it you hear that enough you think maybe i should raise my fee you know this is a little more interesting and and then you have meeting planners say, look, Jeannie, we'd have paid you three times what you charge because that's, a, you know, they're just trying to help you. So you go on up in the business and you get bigger things. So when they came to me after the um, Sirius XM and selling and putting them up on YouTube, I went viral on YouTube and so forth several times. Then the same guy, Alma Cree from Nashville, came back and said, look, we think you can sell tickets. And I said to him, now that you know the meeting world, I said, well, to whom? Because when you book a convention speech, Rick, you don't sell tickets. Right. You go. You go to the room. There the people are. When you do a theater show, or as often is called a concert, when you do those, people go to Ticketmaster or somewhere, buy two tickets, get in their cars, and come just to see you. And I said, I just don't think I have that name recognition. And he said, well, let's give it a shot. And we booked Dallas, sold out within two weeks. So we knew two things from our business standpoint. Number one, I did have some name recognition. Number two, if I sold out in two weeks, we had a theater that was too small. Now I'm doing concerts all over the country. and That's why I'm going to be at the Ryman in September. And I walk out on stage, I have a ball. Someone said to me in speaking, what's the difference, Jeannie? And being a convention speaker and doing walking out on stage and doing an hour and a half, well, there's a big difference. At a convention, you got to have points. You've got to have a message. You've got to have sometimes continuing education credit. Right. And I, I mean, all this with, I did find out I couldn't just walk out and be funny. I'm not a stand up comic type, but I do have a message. But my message is look for the humor around you every day. It's there. So right. I'm having a ball. I'm, I'll be 74 soon and I'm as busy as I can be. And we're just doing these theater shows and having a ball. So that in a nutshell is how I went from standing there with a crown on my head telling about being a six foot two basketball player in the Miss America pageant all the way now to being a grandmother with a husband that I call left brain. And, and I've just changed my material completely every decade. Sure. Just a second. I didn't turn my phone on. Just a minute. Listen to this. Hey, this is Jeannie Robertson. I am on a radio interview with the famous Rick Roberts. May I call you back? (laughs) Hey, Rick Roberts here just popping into the middle of this episode as Jeannie takes her phone call uh, to remind you that I'm doing some live appearances here coming up. If you're listening to this podcast on the day of release, uh, you can find me at the Royal Theater on September 3rd. At 8 o'clock p.m., we're doing a comedy show there to raise some money for the Danville, Indiana Fire Department. And it's part of the uh, Mayberry kind of celebration we're having there to, to kick off the movie, the Mayberry Man movie, which was filmed in large part in Danville, Indiana. And if you're interested in that, there's also some showings of the movie that weekend at the Royal as well. Uh, you can catch me in uh, Hollywood, California area on September 13th as we'll be doing a, a preview of the movie out there at the Liamo Theater, uh, just north of L.A. a little bit. 
Uh, but if you're in that area and you want to meet up, I think I have a little bit of time on that Sunday afternoon before it on the 12th. Or uh, we can maybe meet up on Monday the 13th. Also going to be at the Huckabee Show on September 17th. You can always get tickets to that by just searching Huck Ticks, T-I-X, on uh, the Google there, and it shows you where you can find tickets. All right, let's get back to this interview with my good buddy and recently departed wonderful woman, Jeannie Robertson. I am sorry, and I apologize. I've turned my cell phone off. I'm sitting here in my home office, and so I just forgot it. But uh, don't you just love it when people say, call me back? Yeah. And then you call them. <laughs> they can't do it. But the comedians, I think the comedians' sole goal is to make the majority of the people laugh. They can do so at anyone's expense because if people come into a comedy club, they ought to know that. Mm-hmm. They can go for the jugular. They can hit race, religion, politics, all of this. For the humorist, if you're working anything other than a comedy club or in a straight entertainment slot, all you do when you use that type of material is hurt the meeting planner's chances of keeping his or her job. Yeah. It's because all- they're, oh, it's, I mean, they're, they're, owner of their company comes up immediately and says, did you hear this woman beforehand? What you want him to come up to the meeting planner is to say, where did you find her? And if half of their people are upset or angry about uh, directing comments at their religion, or if you've gone off into politics, half your group's going to be mad, period. Yeah. I think you, so, do, you do a great job of keeping the stories, not only you know clean and appropriate and all that, but to, to write Eight different, you know, comedy specials, basically, in, in your time. You, you're telling stories that are timeless, I think, too. You know, when I, when I was growing up, I have to say it now, he, the good Bill Cosby was telling these stories that were timeless, you know. And if you went back and That's put right. those records on now, they'd still hold up. And I think your stories are the same way because you're, you're exploring human nature and, you know, communication. The, you brought up left brain a little while ago. For, for people who are just well, now finding out about you, tell, tell me a little bit how – the first left brain story and then okay i know exactly was i was in my 60s and um i mentioned my husband but i i'm gonna say that you're exactly right i cannot compete with the not daily writers of the comedy late night people i mean so i don't want to waste any time for i don't want to quite frankly i don't want to get involved with half of my group getting upset but i don't want to waste my time writing a piece of material that's been done to death and already on TV and everything in three days, if not less than that, and flying around. I want a story that everybody has a chance to identify with, and they want to be able to say, she's been a fly on my wall. The same thing happened to me. And that's all. Everybody gets arm flab, Rick. Men and women get arm flab. (laughs) And if you're talking to a certain age group, you want to talk about and poke fun at yourself about the things. Now, in my 60s, one time, I just was, I I just said something about my husband, Jerry, and then I just stopped and said, well, actually, I call him LB for left brain because he is. Well, that's all I had. Uh But the reaction in the audience was so great. I was, I was finding myself thinking in that second world we get in sometime when we're on stage. Mm -hmm. I was talking, but I was thinking, get off this stage and get to a tablet and pencil. These people identified with that. And so then when I started looking at left brain and and said, why did I call him left brain? And then the don't send a man to the grocery store was about oh, sending my, left that, brain. 
You That's know. one of the best and, things ever. <laughs> well, let me tell you, it's a challenge. I'm trying to decide what to do. When I taped it, it now has 9 million hits. And, of course, compared to people that have four and 500 million hits, I'm, you know, Jason, our friend Judson Lampley has 400 million, I think. Mm-hmm. But then I have like 44 million, <laughs> but, but they're just, I just put up a clean stories every so often and there she goes. But the, um, it, when I taped that story and here's another thing, you get better, but your tapes never do. Right. And you know yourself that stories grow. Mm-hmm. And so when I taped that initial story, it was right under eight minutes. It's now over 14. Oh, wow. So I like the newer version much better, but you don't want to mess up something. So we don't know whether to tape the newer version and put it on up for the heck of it and see if people like it, the longer version, like at this concert, or just leave well enough alone. I'm almost, it almost pains me to listen to the almost eight minute version when I know it's such a better story now. Yeah, you might want to put together a a CD just called Best Stories Revisited or something. and and New stories. And and we have... um, uh, an opportunity to do that with the with good footage and camera work coming up, and so it just probably would even go on and retape it that night for the heck of it to have it. Obviously, he's been a good sport about all of it over the years. Has he got any stories on you? He's holding back. <laughs> well, he wouldn't dare. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> people who know him, he's a very quiet man, and people who know um, Jerry, aka Left Brain know that he he will come to me i mean this he's always supported me in what i've done i don't say that you have to have a spouse but if you have one and they're not supportive it's very hard to have a traveling job and on stage and poking fun he will say to me sometimes i did something you might be able to use (laughs) sometimes ricky doesn't get it but he's just such a delightfully nice person interestingly enough um I've added a sentence in my speeches, and if you're, I know you got would want to be comedians and comedians listening in, that really gives the audience permission to laugh when I poke fun at left brain. Mm-hmm. And I had a story about left brain. Uh, the name of the story is "Don't Ask a Man to Bring the Luggage." Okay. Left brain bringing the luggage to Hawaii. Yeah. And um, I just thought it was a really good story, and I've been going through my little steps that I go through to work a story in and I told it in conversation and then I snuck it into a speech and all I came back and I told him this was going to be a winner and it has been a winner and um, then somebody locally asked me to do speak at the Boy Scout banquet here to raise money and I did and left brain went well see everybody in that audience is from our little town they know Jerry I said this is a perfect place to try this story out because it involves you trying to bring that luggage that time and I got up and told the story. We got in a car, and he said, I thought you said people liked that story. Didn't you hear how quiet it was? <laughs> and we realized they know Jerry, and they like Jerry, and they be- immediately became concerned that I was making fun of Jerry. Mm-hmm. So I had not given them permission for me to do that. And so what I say, and it's true in every speech, is I, I love this man. He's my best friend. I would not talk about him if it hurt his feelings. Yeah. And then, of course, being a humorist, I have to add, but he is not here. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. But I, I let them know where we stand on this. I'm not a Phyllis Diller. You remember Phyllis Diller? Oh, yeah. She talked about her husband, Fang. They divorced. They didn't like each other. I mean, I, we don't have a Phyllis Diller-Fang relationship. Gotcha. So I want the audience to know that. 
and give them permission without, you know, he doesn't really like to go so much because people will stop. When I talk about him, they turn to him and they mouth to him. Did that really happen? You know, so he sits in the back. But do you, but do you see what I've done when I, when I do that? I've said, it's okay. We love each other. And it's fine. If it's fine with him that I tell this. That's great. And it's okay. They laugh. Yeah. You mentioned there that you have some steps you go through when you, you're getting the story together. One is, you know, having a little bit of it in conversation and maybe in your speeches and stuff. Can you kind of walk us through? I sure can. I I hear, I keep a journal, I keep a humor journal. I don't keep one of these journals where, um, you, you've, what did I eat for lunch? And I went over here for lunch and I saw Susie. Uh, on everything that I do in my day, which I, I travel for my day, I, ha- I list those things. And then I try every time I encounter, if I'm riding to the airport, I'm listening to talk radio. I'm listening for somebody to say something funny. I don't want to take somebody's piece of material, but something that can trigger my memory, I'm already listening. Then you check in. Even if you use the kiosk, you got to go take your bags over there. Then you sit next to people. You listen to the flight attendants. You see that I'm going through my day. Mm-hmm. When I land, I engage in conversation. If the people behind me are laughing on the plane, I lean my head back and try to listen. Why are they laughing? Are they good friends? What are they talking about? Then when I get there, if the cab driver speaks English, or I speak the same language as the cab driver speaks, I may say, how long have you been driving Uber or the cab or whatever? And usually they'll say, oh, man, I've been driving for years, and I let that sink in a while. And I say, I bet you've seen some funny stuff. Oh, I could write a book. I could write a book. Okay. And then I'll say, well, tell me something funny. Well, you get a lot of bad stuff. But, Rick, you get ideas, too. Uh-huh. Now, I have not even gotten to the hotel. And then I, I engage the person who's taking my luggage to the room. I deliberately, when I could roll it by myself, Well, you know, get the kid and say, yeah, how long you been doing this? Boy, I've been. And so if you write in now, you don't get something in every category every day. Then by the end of the year, you've got four or five hundred little possible stories. Sometimes they just are a story that happens and you can tell that that night, which is impressive. Right. Do you see? Okay. But the rest, I take them and work on. So when January starts, I have a list of say even 30 or 40 things I really think that I worked on through December, which I take off, that are ready to be tried. And then you just start trying. And here's another list. You have that as a list. If you're in your room in the hotel and you're ready to go and speak to that morning session, I want to try one new story. I I talked about this in that session with you last week. I want to try one new either one-liner or story in every program. Well, if you haven't done your legwork, and have your list ready to go, you get ready to leave the room. And I say, what am I going to tell this new? And, oh, well, I just won't do it this time. Right. But if you have a list, they say, okay, I'm going to try this one. And then you have somewhere in your speech or your routine or your set to try it in and then follow it with a, a sure-fired winner. That means you're just rolling all the time with it. And I'll tell you, I've, try, I, I, I've tried a lot of things I thought were going to work, and they didn't. But you just thought, maybe I didn't put in the words they needed to know for this to be funny. And a lot of times, that's it. Right. You didn't. You didn't set it up well enough. This has got to be. So you, it's a rolling process of gathering the material. And while I'm gathering it, I've already got this other list I'm working on from last year. 
Does this right. all make sense? Yeah, or, it makes total sense. Okay. So you're just always working, trying to spit it out, journalize it, do, do these kind of things. So it's fun for me. When I get home, I have my assistant of 38 years, Tony, and left, left brain, and even my some of my good friends. I say, so tell me what you're trying out that's new. Mm-hmm. Or Tony will say, what did you try out that was new? And they have probably heard it because I had tried it in conversation. Um, if two or three people will laugh, and you know, you know, again, I don't want to tell material that attacks people because everybody feels a little uncomfortable. And and I want to just they laugh before they even think. And if I say it and two or three people laugh, then wait a minute. If two or three people laugh, 2,000 will laugh. 200 will laugh if you tell it right. Right. That's great. In other words, I I can be funny, but here's another thing. If I sit down next to somebody at a banquet, I can tell you if I'm the speaker what they're going to ask me. Mm-hmm. How'd you get into this? Do you see? Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm spending the banquet talking about me, all the stuff that I already know. I am wasting my time. Right, <laughs> I right, turn right, it right. on them and say, how long have you been coming to this convention? You know, do you have children? What's the funniest thing you've ever seen happen at the convention? Oh, oh, and then her husband might lean out in front of her and say, don't you remember that year such and such happened? And I, I trust me, when I get back to my room, I got a t- I'm, I'm writing it down. That's great. It's not a, maybe not a complete story, Rick, but it could be the rule of three, your third thing, mm-hmm. or it could be a punchline. Um, the punchline to the baton story that I mentioned earlier, which for a long time was my anchor story, and then I put it on sabbatical. I said, I can't tell this anymore. I've got too many other stories over here. Now, if I'm going back, last year I went back to Atlanta for five years in a row with shows. I told the baton story. Do you see? Because mm-hmm. I needed it by that time. But uh, the punchline in the baton story, which I won't tell you, but I got it off of something somebody had said at a pageant. And I said, that was a funny line, but I didn't have a story for it. Right. But bam, when the baton story happened, I knew I did. And I don't know if you've heard a story called A Mother's Revenge, A Mother's Revenge. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. I had to wait 29 years to get the punchline wow. because until until my son went to college and excuse me, my grandson went to college, what happened with my son wasn't as funny. Mm-hmm. So the minute it happened 29 years later, I said, whoa, I had been always telling this story at, you know, at dinner parties and things. And they'd say, do you tell that in your speeches? And I would say, you know, no, y'all might not get it, but that's just not funny enough at the end. And I just couldn't get anything. And then when something happened with my grandchild, it was like I just stood up, started walking around my office thinking, I've got it. I've got it for the old story. Right. So you just save everything and wait and see what happens with it and give you material a chance to grow. Well, I tell you, that's, that's good advice. And if nothing else comes from that, you start enjoying every day better by tuning into the funny stuff and not the negative stuff. But having that, that list to go to and, and listening for personal stories and then yeah. that's key. If, All the time. All the time. The uh, What happened is I was in, and I've, I tell it in, in speeches, um, I was looking for humor for my speeches and for books and for columns, period. I was in the Atlanta airport, and when they cancel all the flights, it's Mecca for a humorist. Oh, yeah. You know, I used to say, I would go to um, 
school openings and just pray the banner would fall off the wall. <laughs> right. so you go you go with things planned, but you're just hoping something like that happens. So in the Atlanta airport, it not only had all the flights been grounded for a bad storm, it was apparent we were going to be there a while. And, you know, people just go nuts. I literally was changing my seat in different gate areas where I saw whole family groups with children and so forth, waiting this thing out, just seeing was any group being funny. And all of a sudden, back in my own gate area, it hit me. Everybody in my gate area was angry. I mean, everybody's connection was going to be. And But I wasn't. I was so busy looking for the humor that I had affected my own temperament. Right. And that's when it hit me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is not only a good tool for speeches. This is a good tool just for uh, living your life and traveling all the time. These are the steps to developing a sense of humor, not comedic timing. These are steps to because I know, and you do too, you know some hilarious people, Rick, who don't have a sense of humor. Right. That's their problem. They don't, they cause trouble. And then I know some people who never try to be the one on stage, the stand up comedy, but if you work with them often, you realize they're going to be pleasantly the same. Yeah. They have a de- delightful sense of humor. So I just believe it can be developed. And um, I had these steps that I did. And I'll throw in one of them in a concert. But I'm basically there to entertain in a concert. And if you're at a convention business, um, and in the convention business, I feel very comfortable being called a humorist because I'm not a not a stand-up. I don't do the what I admire what people like y'all who do that do. But they're they're cousins, though, don't you think? Oh, yeah. They're not identical twins, but we're in the same family. Thanks, Gia. That was a lot of fun. I appreciate you doing this today. Call me if I can ever help you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Listen back to the interview we had with Jeannie Robertson. Again, she will be missed. And if you don't know or didn't know much about her, uh, there's a ton of great content that she put out on YouTube. Definitely worth going back and just watching a master at work. Uh, nobody delivers a story like Jeannie Robertson. So give it a listen. Go back, look, watch. And if you did know her, uh, you know that she's up in heaven with her husband, left brain, and they're, uh, they're laughing on the front porch in a rocking chair right now. All right, that's going to do it. You guys take care out there. Stay safe. And stay funny. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit SchoolofLaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay funny.